Good morning. My name is Ardalis Green. Welcome to Grace. We're glad you're here. We'll be in just a moment in Deuteronomy chapter 6, but we're in a series entitled You Pick. We did a survey a few weeks ago to uh, ask the question, uh, what would you like to hear a sermon on this summer? And one of the topics you picked was parenting. Specifically, how do I become a better parent? So let me ask you a question. Um, if you were asked to become a better parent, what do you think a parent needs to do to be a better parent? In other words, a parent needs to, you fill in the blank. In order to be a better parent, a parent needs to teach about God. Yes, teach your children about faith. What else? Love your children. Love your children. It's good. Maybe have children, right, to be a parent. But love those children you have. Very good. We're going to be on that topic of love. Anything else? Patience. A parent needs patience. Lots of patience, right? Long suffering. <laughs> good. Okay. I'm going to try to come up with an answer in just a moment, three different directions. But let me tell you a story as we open up the sermon. Uh, it's kind of a metaphor for my life. Um, but one of the favorite things we like to do as a family is go to the beach. My wife, Debbie, loves the beach. She loves to be by the shore and the waves rolling in. She puts on her pelican hat and gets a book and the sun beating upon her, sun kissing her face. Well, this story I'm about to tell you took place 26 years ago when my son Chris was six and my daughter Betsy was four and little Jimmy was one years old. Now, we as a family like to set up, you know, fairly close to the shore, but not so close that the tide will sort of, you know, sweep our stuff away. So it's the afternoon now. We've been to the beach all day. And Debbie turns to me and says, where's Chris? Now, <laughs> usually I'm pretty attentive, you know, and, but also Chris would visit with other families close on the beach. And so we look to left and right, and there's no Chris. So this is the days before there was cell phones. So Debbie goes to the left, and I go to the right. And um, so, like, Chris is nowhere to be found. But the concern rose to panic as the frightening reality set in that Chris was nowhere to be found. I was uh, going up and down the beach, you know, for 10 minutes. Chris, 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 have you seen this little blonde-headed boy? 20 minutes passed by, still no Chris. Some parents began searching with me for Chris. 30 minutes passed, 40 minutes went by, no Chris. And my heart started racing faster than I knew my heart could race. <laughs> my gaze kind of scoured the beach, like, where is Chris, right? 50 minutes passed, still no sign of Chris. And now the sound of the ocean, which is very calming to me, became very anxious to me. And I never knew how a pleasurable place like the beach can be so anxiety-ridden. And I spotted Chris in the distance. He was about 10 blocks from where he started. He was chasing seagulls. Now, to this day, neither Chris nor I have a great sense of direction. He thought he was turning toward us when he was turning farther away chasing these seagulls. So he was so engrossed with seagulls, he didn't know he was lost. And uh, when he saw me, he said, hey, Dad, how's it going? <laughs> now, my first response was, I just need to hug this child and love on him. My second thought was, he needs a good spanking. Like, and so what I want to say is, when he was lost, he didn't know he was lost. 
and I didn't like the distance between us. And I, as a father, felt compelled to pursue him, to find him, to repair the relationship, because I felt as if he was in great, great danger. Some of your children you feel distance from because they're in great, great danger. So let me speak to you now about parenting, at least three different aspects of parenting. The first is intentionality. You say, Pastor, what is it that makes a good parent? Well, I would say it begins with intentional leadership, making parenting a priority, being purposeful. You ask, what is the purpose of parenting? Well, I believe it is to form the character of the child, to see how that child is uniquely bent, constructed, to help them mature, and then to be able to stand on their own two feet. One mother, I was asking about her parenting style, and she said, I, I think my style is I am a benevolent dictator. Anybody here cons consider themselves a benevolent dictator? Nobody admits to it, okay. I know there's dictators out there. But she said, you know, being the benevolent dictator, I wanted to monitor the language my children were using. I wanted to know the friends that they were hanging out with. I want to know the shows they were looking at on television and the games they were playing. To be an intentional parent will require sacrifice and diligence and consistency because all children need boundaries and discipline. Some of you need the vitamin N, which is no. The greatest word that you need to learn with regard to children is no. No, nope, no way, not happening. Now, you want to say yes as much as you can say yes, but the answer for now is no, and feel good about saying no. I suppose our kids would consider us to be pretty strict because we were always setting boundaries for them for their protection. If you uh, know me, you know I say often, nothing good happens after midnight. And I mean it, that nothing good happens after midnight. So when are you coming home? Well, I'm sure it's going to be before midnight. Well, we tried to give them life lessons. We tried to teach them with wisdom and compassion. We tried to teach them manners, how to be respectful to others, to God, to themselves. We tried to teach them a good work ethic that they could work with a good attitude. We wanted to be intentional about our kids' friends. So our backyard was pretty great for football games and soccer and volleyball. We also had a basketball court. We kept lots of drinks in the fridge and lots of popsicles. Little kids would come over and say, Pastor Ark, can I have a popsicle? And uh, snacks, lots of snacks. Our kids play, pretty much played at home aside from the teams they played on because we were concerned about the influences they would get from somewhere else. Now, that meant a lot of cleaning up, right? Little footprints. And it evolved over time into something we know as tea fellowship, which means you can come to my house and we'll get a pot of tea and we'll sit at the table and talk about anything you want to talk about. So tea fellowship would happen. We knew we couldn't be passive. We had to be intentional. Thinking about your own summertime now with your own children, what do you need to be intentional about? Some of your kids are about ready to go off to college. It's a time for intentionality. Some of your kids have become adults, walking with them through their lives. This year has been a year of 
tremendous hardship in my own family. I have a son who has been married five years and that marriage is dissolving. I have a daughter who gave birth about three weeks ago and the child suddenly died. It's been a lot of difficult things to walk through. I learned something about my children, though, that the worst time to have a conversation with them was when they just came through the door. <laughs> I discovered they needed to unwind, you know, to sit down for a while and slip off their shoes and have something to drink and something to eat. I learned that if I peppered them with questions, <laughs> you know, kind of prying into their lives, you know, pressuring them to talk, you will talk to your dad, that they sort of shut down, that didn't really want to be judged or criticized. Their feelings were valuable and valid. So oftentimes I would ask the question, you know, how was school? And the answer was good. Then I asked, how was practice? And they said, good. And then I said, how was youth group? And they said, good. So I thought, well, I'll just kind of raise the hand a little bit and say like, really good or kind of good or normal good or not so good, but the answer was good. So what, what I found difficult was in their growing up years to have conversations before they could settle in a little bit and feel comfortable and open up their souls. And the third thing I'd say to you is a reproducible process. You know, I've lived long enough to be now a grandpa, to see my children's children. I have four children and three grandchildren on earth and one in heaven. And two of my children have children. And when we look together on the, at the internet, FaceTiming each other, I see my kids' kids sitting around the dinner table just like their parents sat with them around the table, teaching their kids lessons from the Word of God, putting them to bed, reading Bible stories, monitoring closely their friendships, putting on Christian music like Steve Green, Hide Them in Your Heart, memorizing verses from the Bible, and praying with their kids. What I see my children being is intentional or purposeful, and it warms my heart. I've seen them wanting for their children what we wanted for our children, which is to build a strong foundation in their life. Understand when you're a parent, you are building a strong foundation in somebody's life. Jesus said it this way, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be a man who built his house upon a rock. The rains fell down and the winds blew and beat against the house and the floods came up, but the house stood firm because it was built upon the rock. You want your children's life to be built on a very strong foundation. So let's look together at Deuteronomy chapter 6 as Moses will address the subject of parenting. He said, now these are the commands and decrees and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing over the Jordan to possess. Now he's speaking to the people before they cross the Jordan River into the promised land, and these are now instructions that God had given to him so that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of these decrees and commands that I give you. Notice he's speaking here now to three generations. 
He's speaking to the parents concerning their children and then to the children's children. Do you know that by parenting, you can affect generations to come after you? You can influence your children who will influence their children who will influence the children after them. A man was himself coming out of a lifestyle of alcoholism. And he said to his son when he was nine years old, you know, son, you can be the first generation in our family that is not an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic. His father's father was an alcoholic. His father's father's father was an alcoholic. And he had followed suit. You see, there is an intergenerational pattern to all of our lives. But when Jesus Christ comes into our life, he enables us to break those patterns and establish new patterns. And by this one decision the son would make, he would pass on health and wholeness to his own children. That you may fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? To teach our, to raise our children in the fear of the Lord. Well, he's a God-fearing man. To fear the Lord means to know that I'm accountable, right? I'm responsible. I'll have to answer for my stewardship of these children. They're a gift that God has given to me, but I'm a steward of this gift, and I'll have to answer. I will answer to God. <laughs> I had, when I was growing up, a shop teacher that I did not respect or fear. He had come from Scotland, and every day he wore a Scottish brogue tie. And me and my derelict friends sat in the back of the shop class, kind of making fun of his accent. And he also wore a hearing aid. Now, so one day, um, one of my friends said to me, why don't you just tease the Mr. Watt? So I raised my hand to ask a question. And instead of saying the words out loud, I just kind of mouthed the words. Remember, he had a hearing aid. So he turned up his hearing aid. And I went, and he turned it up a little more, and I shouted, Mr. Watt. Well, he invited me out of the classroom <laughs> because he had a board of education, and he applied it to the seat of my learning <laughs> with three whacks that I'll never forget. And then he said to me, Mr. Green, you need to shape up your behavior. I love you very much. It was the first time I'd ever been disciplined. You see, the fear of the Lord is to respect him, to look up to him with respect, or to look out for his judgment. I did not look up to my shop teacher. So what happened was I then had to watch out for his judgment. You see, the Lord is the Lord, and he's holy and righteous and just. And so each one of us is accountable before him. Then it says that you may enjoy this long life that I give you. The first commandment on the second tablet is to honor your mother and your father, right? which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long upon the earth. I used to say to my kids, do you want it to go well for you? Do you want to live long upon the earth? Then you honor your mother and your father, especially your mother. It says, Hear, O Israel, be careful to obey, that all will go well with you, that you will increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. I often think about where we live now, to be a land flowing with milk and honey. That the, 
just as I promised you. Now here it comes in verse 4, what's known as the Shema of Israel. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was something that was said at every synagogue gathering. Um, a good Jewish person would say these words in the morning and the evening. It was part of Shema, Hear, O Israel. And this is what it says. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is Yahweh, and he is our God. Our God is the creator, and our God is the sustainer, and our God is the provider. He opens his hand and provides for us. Our God is our protector from our enemies. Our God is our redeemer, and our God is our savior. You see, they were coming out of a land where there were many different gods, and the Egyptians bowed down to these gods. And Moses was careful that the people would not carry their gods with them, that their focus, attention, allegiance, affection would be set upon the Lord God, the true and living God. You see, it was the God who had heard their cries and saw them, their misery, and delivered them out of bondage and rescued them from Pharaoh and brought them through the Red Sea and provided manna for them for 40 years and enabled them to conquer over their enemies and brought them into this land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord had been good to his people. He was the God who had stretched out his arms and delivered his people. And he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. This is a theologically rich and profoundly beautiful sentence about the Lord, that the Lord is God and the Lord is one God. The God of the universe, then, is the subject of all discipleship. Look at verse 5 now, speaking to us. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your strength. It's as if Moses is going to speak now to three different concentric circles. And he begins with the first circle concerning our personal discipleship with God our own relationship with God. He doesn't begin talking about discipleship by saying, teach your kids the Ten Commandments. Here's the code you must submit to. Here's the rules you must live by. He begins his teaching saying, love. Why? Because love is the highest motivation in any human heart. We love because God first loved us. This is how we know what love really is. God sent his son that we might live. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Shema begins with love. You see, where there's love, love is greater than hate. And love is greater than division. And love is greater than strife. And love is greater than prejudice. God doesn't start with the do's and don'ts. He begins by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength. You say, Pastor R, how do I do this? Like, how do I love God with all of my being from the center of who I am? Let me try to explain it to you like this. There's two ways to make a cup of tea. One way to make a cup of tea is you take a hot water and you just dip the bag into the tea and kind of pull it out. 
A second way you do this is you take the tea bag and you let it stay for a while. Let it bask in the hot water because the flavor of the tea bag gets released the longer it is in the hot water. The love of God gets released inside of us the longer we bask in the love of God. When we begin to think about all that God has done for us, that he has rescued us and delivered us, that he has saved us, that he sent his son to do deliberate things, to let my heart be stirred with affection for God, that God feels affection for me and he feels affection for you, that God is so very fond of you. Long before you ever loved God, God loved you. And long before you ever chose to follow God, God had chosen you to be his son, to be his daughter. And to let that love of God just bask inside your heart. And there's moments when you feel this love of God. It's intellectual, but it's also part of our feelings, the love of God. You know, when you're in a hot shower, and just letting that warm water just run over your back. You can just bask in the warmth and reflect on the goodness and love of God that he would give me a warm shower. I was out in the country, and um, I was riding a bicycle with Debbie, and we came upon some wine berries. You know what wine berries are? These little red berries that are as good as raspberries, but you don't have to buy them. You can find them in the country. So we were just kind of like basking in the goodness of these wine berries. And the thought occurred to me that God is so good to give us this gift of wine berries in the country, and we just were just lapping up the goodness and the favor and the love of God. You say, Pastor, how do you stir up your affections for God? Well, one of the things I do is I get up very early. I like to get up before the sun comes up, and I like to be in the presence of God. I love to be in nature, just being in the quietness and stillness of nature. I love to read scripture. The scripture itself kind of renews me and refuels me. I love to read scripture. Something comes alive in my heart concerning my affections for God when I'm reminding myself of who God is. You see, I can't make a disciple unless I am a disciple. And I can't love somebody unless I have been loved. So the discipleship process begins for a parent with their own relationship with God. You can't give away to somebody else that which you do not have. But that which you have, you can give away to someone else. So when God begins to talk to parents, the first thing he says to them is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Then he begins so the first circle has to do with a love relationship with Jesus Christ, of letting your affections be stirred for him over and over. Then he goes on in verse 6 to say, These commandments that I give you today are, be, are to be upon your hearts. So it's not only in your head, but it's also in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the more we fill ourselves up with God, the more we have to share. These commandments I give to you to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, 
and when you get up. The second circle, the second concentric circle, is to teach these commands diligently to your children. Now, when I say this to you, teach them diligently to your children, what pops into your mind? Well, some of you are thinking, I think, I don't have time to do this, right? My life is very busy. I have football practice, you know, three nights a week. I have gymnastics twice a week. I have baseball three times a week plus games. I have swimming meets early in the morning. I mean, everybody has something, right? I mean, some days, Pastor Art, it's more like survival mode, right? I'm just trying to get myself out of bed, get everybody else out of bed, you know, get them in the car, drive them somewhere, get over to work, do my work, come home, throw some chicken McNuggets at them, get them to bed by 10 o'clock. It's, we're living in survival mode, right? Now, if I were to say to you, we're all going to have family devotions tomorrow at 6 p.m., what would your response be? Could we all do tomorrow at 6 p.m.? Do you know about my 6 p.m., Pastor R? Like, it's pretty busy. What if I said Tuesday night, 7.30 p.m.? We're all going to have devotions. When am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to do this? Are you asking something I can't do? But God knows we live in the real world, right? And the text serves us well. So let's look at it very carefully about what God has to say. You shall teach them diligently, right? Impress them on their hearts. Talk about them when you sit at home. How many of you ever sit at home? Come on. How many of you have a couch? Do you ever sit on your couch? What do you do when you sit on your couch? Do you ever talk about the things of God? Do you ever like say, hey, we're going to read through the book of Mark. We're going to read the first story from the book of Mark. We're going to read through the Proverbs. It's just one little proverb. We're going to read it and talk about what it means. You see, what Jesus was was very intentional with his disciples. They were in the temple, and there was this woman, and she just brought two little coins. The rich had given very large gifts, but she had a very large gift to give, two coins. And Jesus said she gave more than all the others gave. They gave out of her wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. What would it be like, kids, if we were to give everything to God? That's something to ponder. Jesus and his disciples, they had gone up to Capernaum, and Jesus was teaching this house. And there was this man, and he, uh, <laughs> he was paralyzed. And he had four friends, and they carried this man to Jesus, but there was no getting into the house. So they went up on the roof, and they dug through the roof, right, and lowered the man down. I wonder, kids, who we need to carry to Jesus. Because friends are always carrying their friends somewhere. I wonder if there's a friend of yours we need to carry to Jesus. See, Jesus was taking the common, everyday things of life and turning them into life lessons. And this is exactly what we need to do with our children, with our grandchildren, take their lives and draw the lessons out of their lives. How many of you here have a dinner table? I know a lot of you, a lot of people are getting rid of their dinner tables, right? We never eat dinner. How many of you last week had dinner together as a family? About half. What would it be like 
if we just lingered for a little while, being intentional, at the dinner table, you know, get your drink, get your dessert, we're just going to open up the Word and pray with each other. What would that feel like in your family? Do you think, you think we can do that? You think that's possible? Do you think it's possible? How about when we walk by the way? Any of you ever drive your kids places? There's no better place to have a five-minute conversation than inside the car. You've got a captive audience. They have nowhere to go. They are with you now, right? When Josh got his learner's permit, for four months, I drove with him down to South Germantown twice a week. We'd get in the car and talk about his life. It was about a 45-minute conversation. We'd stop and get a Gatorade on the way back. We'd talk some more. And then once he got his driver's license, he said, you know, Dad, it's really not necessary for you to drive in the car with me anymore, but I kind of like it. Can you just keep on driving with me? So we drove in the car. Up and back the road we went as he just talked about his life. He just seemed to be able to talk better inside the car than he could inside the house. What are we doing to diligently teach our children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength? How do we do this when we're sitting around the house, when we're driving in the car, when we're getting up in the morning? Now, I want to confess to you something about the greenhouse, you know, in the morning. Sometimes mornings are a little rough. Sometimes, you know, it's a protein bar and a little bit of juice and a lot of screaming and conversations like, where are my shoes? The shoes are lost again. Some mornings, it's sort of angelic and peaceful and quiet, you know, like we're just going to visit with each other and pray. But what about in the morning being intentional with your children? How about when we lie down at night? Any of you people put your kids to bed at night? You do you? Good. There's this great tool called the Storybook Bible. It is tremendous stories of the Bible to be reading with your kids. So I was with my grandson, William. This has been a little while now, last week. And uh, the question came up, who's going to put William down? And I went, I will. So Pastor R disappeared for an hour and a half with William. We sang songs together. I told him stories. We read through the entire storybook Bible together. (laughs) Hour and a half later, I came downstairs. So uh, choose well the person who puts you to bed at night. So anyway, what I'm trying to say to you is, This text serves us well because it fits into the rhythm of our life. Do you believe that you can be intentional given the rhythms of your life to be able to impart to your children the lessons that God is teaching you? It presumes upon the fact that we're going to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. And then we're going to teach them diligently. That's a second concentric circle. We're going to teach them diligently to our children. I'll say this about having family devotions. Um, Sometimes they erupt into a fight. Sometimes a child will be sent to bed. Sometimes, no, you can't have another drink. So we, (laughs) we actually came to the point with our kids of having a confessional before we would have our devotional. Like, 
I will not punch my sister. I will not sass my mom. I will not ask my dad irrelevant questions. And we try to manage it down to about 10 minutes. So we just got it down to 10 minutes. And this is what I used to say. I said, it's time again for our family devotions. That's what happened. So the second concentric circle is being intentional to teach your children or your grandchildren, okay? And the third one, I don't want you to miss it, is the impact, the influence your family has upon the community. It says in verse 9 that write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's sort of a public witness. As the family's health begins to improve, as there's more connection and life in the family, there's a witness of that family. As mom and dad submit to God's design for the family, putting our kids down, waking them up, being intentional about passing on our faith, what happens is our children begin to take ownership of their own faith. They begin to be lights shining in the darkened world. I mean, where do people go when it's dark? They always go to the light. Where do they go when there's despair? They always move to where there's hope. And that can be the influence of your family upon your community and your extended family. I'd like to apply this message by turning now back to John chapter 4. I'm going to tell you a story. John chapter 4 and the 46th verse. The scripture says that once more, Jesus visited Canaan of Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. Jesus did an amazing thing. Jesus did a miracle when there was no more wine. Jesus took water and turned it into wine. And the word concerning this miracle began to spread. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Capernaum was about 25 miles away from Cana. So this official had walked a long distance to see Jesus. Some of you here have come a long distance to meet with Jesus. You want to hear a word from Jesus. And so this man himself had come in a very dire condition. When he arrived there, he went to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. This man was in a crisis of faith. His son was in a very poor condition. I'm sure he had been to various physicians, but the physicians were unable to help him. But he believed that if Jesus would only lay his hands upon his son in his dire condition, that Jesus could bring healing about in his son's life. He was very close to death. And Jesus said, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. This man was basically out to see a miracle happen. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And notice what Jesus replied. He said, you may go, your son will live. This man went from a crisis of faith to a confident faith. Jesus spoke into this man's life. You see, our God is generous. Our God always gives. And our God is good. He always does what is best. And our God is wise. He always 
imparts wisdom to parents. What I find here in this text is this man is coming to Jesus with his son. He is bringing his son into the presence of Jesus for Jesus to heal his son. I don't know if there is estrangement in your relationship with your son or your daughter, but we always can bring them to Jesus. I don't know if your son is suffering, your daughter is suffering because they feel rejected or feel unloved or they feel unaccepted. I want to tell you that Jesus is able to heal the broken parts inside of us. Jesus takes things that are broken and makes them whole. He sits upon a throne and says, I make all things new. This man had the faith to believe that Jesus could make a difference in his son's life. Do you have faith to believe that God can move in your family, that God can do a work in your child's life, that God can do a work in your grandchild's life? Because God puts a burden inside our heart for our kids. And we need to bring our kids one by one in the presence of Jesus and name the burden and lay them at the feet of Jesus. What happens in the story is the man starts to go toward home. And as he goes towards home, a servant comes out and says, he's all better. <laughs> your son's alive. He said, what hour? He said, the very hour Jesus said, your son will live. And this is the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed. And the whole household came to faith. I believe that one of the most intentional things that we can do as parents is to bring our children to the altar, to lay them at the feet of Jesus and ask Jesus to do that which alone he can do, to cleanse, to heal, to strengthen, to give wisdom, to repair, to restore. Our God is an awesome God, and God's power is released through prayer. And we're going to sing now one last song called Come to the Altar. Now, this may be an invitation to you just to come yourself before the altar, but you may be bringing a burden, a concern before the Lord. It's a time for us just to be honest and transparent and vulnerable to God. You never have to feel badly about praying. God's inviting us to pray. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you're going to find. Knock, and the door will be opened unto you. The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. So don't be afraid to pray. Don't be afraid to lay the concern before the throne of God. Don't be afraid to ask God for his help. Hey, we need some help. We need some wisdom with our daughters. We need some strength in the midst of this trial. We need a healing in the life of my son. Just bring these concerns to the Lord. Let me get it started. I invite the team to come. Our God, here we are talking about parenting. Perhaps nothing is as close to your heart as the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. And many parents here face enormous challenges while walking through great trials and afflictions. Many people here are dealing with very tough stuff to deal with. But God, you are our refuge and you are our strength. You are an ever-present help in our days of trouble. 
So God, would you allow us the grace to be able to pray in Jesus' name, believing that you hear our prayers, that you come to our rescue, that you want to restore what is broken. You want to heal what is sick. You want to do that which you alone can do, but you require of us to ask you. So here in the quietness of this place, we quiet our hearts and we say, Jesus, come near as we draw near to you. God, would you do a great work in our families, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. You may stand. We're going to sing now, come to the altar, and this is your invitation.